Well, we began this season of Lent with the imposition of ashes on our heads and the declaration, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Repent and believe the gospel. And here, as we're drawing near the end of Lent, we've come full circle. The public service announcement for this week is, we are all going to die. Now, it sounds funny when I say it like that, but of course it's, it's true. It's the fundamental fact of life, it seems sometimes, is death. Um, but it's really difficult in our culture to talk about moral- mortality, frankly. I feel awkward even saying the word death in polite conversation. I usually opt for euphemisms when I have to, like, passed away. And that comes from a good place. After all, losing someone to death can be unbelievably painful. It is a brush with evil. And contemplating our own death when we can even manage to do so is is horrifying and disorienting. So we often revert to vague language or sentimental ideas in a well-meaning attempt to buffer ourselves and buffer others from realities that are so tough to handle. But sometimes that is not as helpful as we might think. Our avoidance of death, even speaking of death in life, means that when death does come, as it surely will, we have few resources for grappling with this profound loss. When my mother died about 10 years ago, I remember feeling surprised and frustrated by my lack of understanding. Having been a Christian for decades, I kind of assumed that I had a pretty good grasp on the answer to the question, what happens after you die? But when I went to that drawer in my mind that was labeled when death comes and pulled it open to review what I knew about what comes after death, much to my dismay, there wasn't a lot in there. There are a few images, you know, clouds, trumpet sounds, streets of gold, walls of jasper was in there. Um, But the rest of that drawer was pretty empty with some, like, puffs of dust in the corners. And it is true. God has not revealed to us all the things that we would really like to know about what comes after death. There is a lot we do not know about that life that we lead after death. I think probably that has a lot to do with the fact that we don't have the capacity uh, to understand what's coming next. It would be like describing to a child that's still in the womb about stuff like food and clothing. That stuff is real. It will be quite relevant, um, but it can't be done. Uh, That child has insufficient capacity to understand what's ahead. I think the same is probably true for us also. But just because that communication gap is so vast, it doesn't mean that it is entirely unbridgeable. God has revealed to us in Scripture not all the things that we would genuinely like to know. But as we'll see this morning, what has been revealed to us is powerful. It is life-changing. The revelation of God around death and what follows has the potential not only to transform our lives here, as it surely does, but also to empower us to face death with courage and in the comfort of the Lord. A long time ago, Christian believers in Corinth were struggling under some unhelpful 
ideas around death. These were fanciful ideas that they found comforting, but were ultimately untrue and therefore harmful. God's response to their mistakes was to inspire a man named Paul to write them a letter about the truth. And what we find there has nothing to do with euphemisms or sentiment, but something that can truly provide us with what we need to face death in comfort and the courage of the Lord. And we'll begin this morning, if you want to look in your programs or open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll begin with what Paul himself identifies as being of first importance. Verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The incarnation of Jesus, his life, his death, burial, resurrection, these are the historical events in which all of Christian faith is grounded. This is kind of here a creedal summary of the good news proclaimed to the world that all the hope we have in this world and the next rests not in human ideologies or philosophical speculations or even in human wisdom, but in the true story of how God entered human history as a man and was crucified for us. This true story of Jesus is critically important because his story changed our story. Our human story began in a beautiful place with man and woman utterly at peace with one another, with nature, and with God who is the source of all life and all love. Then an enemy personified, depicted as a snake, tempted our first human father and mother, and who deliberately then severed their connection to the God of life and love through sin. That's when death entered our stories. Death entered our world and swiftly became the operative force in our existence. All aspects of our lives now are shadowed by sin, by loss and the certainty of death. Our relationships don't work well. Our bodies break down. The tragedy of death begins in life. In the haunting words of a medieval chant that has become part of the Anglican funeral rite, even in the midst of life, we are in death. Mia vita in morte sumus. And it begins, in the midst of life, we are in death. Of whom may we seek for succor, but of thee, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. And then this hymn develops into a plea to the God that we rejected and offended. Yet, O Lord most holy, O Lord most mighty, O holy and most merciful Savior, deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that God heard this plea for mercy, deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. And God responded. He didn't just hear, he did something. He acted and he moved. Because it is not God's will that any should perish, 
God does not choose death for anyone. People choose death for themselves. You and I choose death when we choose sin. But even at the moment of our first sin, God promised that he would send a savior, a savior to rescue us from sin and from death. And God prophesied that the enemy, that snake, would bite the heel of the savior, but the savior would crush the head of that snake. So in response to our pleas for help, the Savior God sent was his own son, Jesus, who not only took on our now mortal human flesh, but he suffered death in order to free us from death. He himself bore our sins on his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When it comes to our ability to find courage in the face of death, this is the issue of first importance. When, God, when Jesus was raised by God from the dead, that was the first sign that the head of the snake has been crushed and the reign of death is ending. Even now, death has been dealt a death blow. The crucifixion, death, and resurrection was the beginning of the end. That's, that is the matter of first importance. Paul goes on to say, nothing else matters if this is not the case. At verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, if we have sentimental thoughts only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Millions of people admire the beauty of the Christian faith as a compelling story, a compelling myth. Others find the teaching and the ethics of of Jesus deeply attractive. Even some who profess to be Christians regard the resurrection story simply as a powerful metaphor for hope, for second chances. But if Jesus Christ has not been literally, historically, bodily raised from death, we are still bound to death now and through eternity. Ethical philosophies and inspirational myths may or may not make life more uh, tolerable in the short term, but they are of no use whatsoever when we head down to the grave. But the historical truth of Christ's resurrection, that is the fact that resets reality. This is why Paul, back in verses four, or five through eight, drew attention to the fact that hundreds of people, including he himself, saw, touched, spoke to, ate with, and recognized the living Jesus after his crucifixion. The courage and comfort of the Christian faith, of the Christian in the face of death, is not sentimental or fanciful, but rooted in this flesh and blood reality that, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What are the implications of Christ's resurrection for us and for all who are in Christ? 
We'll focus this morning on just a couple of things. The first is that for those who are in Christ, we will never be separated from God again, even when we're separated from our own bodies. And we will be given new bodies that reflect this new reality. Last week, in the Sermon on Sacramental Confession, we spoke about the wholeness of the human being. However, we might try to compartmentalize the different facets of ourselves, mind, body, soul, they are indeed bound together in wonderful and mysterious ways. But the tragedy of death is when sin and the decay and disease and accident that go hand in hand with sin all play out, at death, the body and the soul are separated. The body returns to the dust of the earth from whence it came, and the soul departs from it. Now, apart from Christ, this is a terrible and frightening thing. Apart from Christ, this separation is death having the final word. Apart from Christ, this is when a person is separated from all those who know and love them, separated from his or her own self, and most horrifying, separated from God, who is the source of all life and all love. Apart from Christ, death is an unmitigated tragedy. But in Christ, though we are still separated for a time, from all the living who know and love us, and though we are separated for a time, even from our own bodies, in Christ, once you are in Christ, there is not any moment ever when we are separated from the God in whom we have placed our trust. Paul states this very clearly in another of his letters. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries for tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, brothers and sisters, is the source of the comfort and courage we have, even in the face of death. For those who die in Christ, there is no moment in which we have to fear being separated from God. Our bodies will forsake us, our souls will leave our bodies, but once we're in Christ, we will never be parted from him again. Our bodies return to that dust, but our souls immediately are in the exclusive care of God himself. And the teachings of scripture on this point are clear that if at the moment of death, we are received into the presence of God, where we experience rest, relief, and joy. Whether a believer passes away quietly in her sleep or dies an agonizing death, the kind that we wouldn't worse wish on our worst enemy. When she dies, she immediately experiences relief from all suffering, mental, physical, emotional, and enters a season of deep rest. That believer, after death, is still himself or herself, and he or she is consciously 
and contentedly in the presence of the Lord. As Jesus said to the repentant thief who died on the cross right beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, if this is the case, if at our death our bodies descend to to death, to the grave, and souls go to be with God, you might be sympathetic to the Corinthians Paul was writing to. You see, they did believe in the physical, historical resurrection of Jesus, and they believed correctly that because they were in Christ, that they, their souls would go to be with him at the time of death. However, they did not believe that they themselves were going to receive a resurrection body like Christ did. Like many people today, they did not value their own physical bodies very much. They thought that they could kind of ditch their physical bodies forever when they died, and they looked forward to being disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. They did not understand the significance of Jesus' own resurrection body or the importance that God places on our bodies. So Paul's response, which is the Lord's response to this misunderstanding, hints at why the Corinthians believe that. But he also points firmly to God's intentions and reasonings for our, our bodies. Verses 37 and 38. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that bodies are given by God as he chooses. And he is affirming the continuity between our current bodies and our future bodies, as a kernel of wheat is vitally connected to the plant that will grow from it. Paul goes on in verse 42, speaking of the contrast between our current bodies and our future bodies. What is sown, what goes down to the grave, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Our current bodies are precious to us and to the Lord, but they are not durable enough to contain the vibrancy and energy and glory of life without death a world shot through with the holiness of God that we will be able to stand in the presence of perceiving in the flesh. And so we learn of God's provision of a powerful, glorious resurrection body that can handle powerful, glorious resurrection life for eternity. Paul, again, contrasting our current natural bodies with our future resurrection bodies, which he describes as spiritual, Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, the language spiritual body can be confusing. To us, it sounds maybe like the Corinthians were right in correctly thinking that there is some sort of spiritual body um, that was ethereal, non-corporeal. But Paul is actually just contrasting the pre-resurrection type of body with a post-resurrection type of body. Verses 48 and 49, as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear 
the image of the man in heaven. Our, what Paul calls the natural body is the type of body that the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, had. It is the type of body that Jesus had when he was born as a human baby, and it's the type of body that each one of us was given by God at our conception. But once that wor- the world was marked and marred by sin and death, our bodies, although precious, are perishable, vulnerable, weak. Our current bodies were sown in dishonor. But through the miracle of the resurrection, Jesus secured for us not only the promise of new life in Christ, but the bodies that will be fit to bear this new life for all eternity. We received from God natural bodies when we were born, but at the end of time, we received changed bodies fit for eternity. Paul calls this a mystery. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, and by sleep, Paul means die. Not everyone will have died when Christ comes again. We shall all be changed. Uh, Even if you're still living on earth when Jesus comes again, you don't get to hang on to this same body that's running out here, um, but will receive an imperishable body. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So it is not the case that we will, after death, get our old sort of reanimated corpse back. That is not the case. But it's also not the case that we get an entirely new body that has no connection and nothing to do with the bodies that Christ gave us at first. God will translate our bodies into a form suitable for a life of glory. And we know that this will be true for us because it was true for Jesus. When Jesus' friends and family members and disciples saw him in his resurrection body, they recognized him although not always instantly. There was enough continuity that they knew for sure that it was Jesus. Even Thomas the skeptic uh, believed in the resurrection, although he had said him, he had declared that he was suspicious. Um, he, as soon as he saw the face of Jesus and heard his voice, he recognized him and bowed down to worship him. Jesus was the same man in the same but different body. The resurrection body is one that is 100% free from the influence of sin and death, suited in every way to thrive in God's presence forever. Beautiful bodies, powerful bodies, bodies glorious, enduring forever. You and I live in an in-between time. Here in March of the year 2021, Jesus has already risen from the dead. His resurrection 2,000 years ago is the promise of our resurrection, which is still to come. It is undeniable evidence. The physical resurrection of Jesus is evidence that the head of the snake has indeed been crushed and that those who turn to Christ in faith are already receiving the power of eternal life We are already assured that those who are in Christ will never be parted from him. But we also know that the body of the snake, even in its death throes, is still wriggling, as it were. Humankind is still sinning. 
We are still suffering the ravages of sin and death. We are still living in our first bodies, which will return to dust. We are still having our loved ones torn away from us by death. We look forward then, though, to the coming day when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, everything set against God and everything set against us. When the, imp- when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death and the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That future day, the day that's still ahead, is the consummation of all of history. On that last day at the end of time, when all of life is reconciled in and to Jesus, Jesus presents everything to his loving Father by whose power he was raised. This is the moment then when all who are in Christ receive resurrection bodies and joy is complete. The souls of those who have been abiding with the Lord in some way, God doesn't give a lot of details on that, that is the moment they receive new resurrection bodies and any believers on earth receive new resurrection bodies in that moment when we have new incorruptible bodies, we will know at last that the snake is dead. No longer wriggling around, no longer stinging and striking. On that day, death will be swallowed completely in victory. And we will stand in the flesh and see the face of Jesus. Jesus humbled himself and took on our weak flesh. He took our sins upon himself and died the death that sin brings with it. And then our holy and loving Father raised him from among the dead in an immortal body so that we might know that that quiet, humble victory of a life lived in obedient sacrifice will lead inexorably to a loud and glorious victory of eternal life over the temporal death that dogs our heels. For anyone here or listening who has known the darkness of sin and death, but isn't sure what it means to be in Christ, please reach out today. If you are listening online, um, you can email us at care at at emmanuelanglican.org. If you're here in person, and you're wondering, what does it mean to be in Christ? Am I in Christ? Can I be in Christ? Please grab Father Aaron or Pastor Nicole or me or any any leader at Emmanuel. We would be so happy to speak with you more about what it means to be in Christ and assured of never leaving the presence of a loving God again. Um, And finally, though, I want to offer some words in honor of all those who have lost people to death this past year. There are so many among us who have buried a father or a mother this year, a close friend, 
a beloved aunt or uncle, a grandparent. In the words from the Eastern Orthodox funeral rite, all of us go down to the dust, yet even at the grave we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. At every Christian funeral, even in the middle of Lent, we celebrate our resurrection hope with the Alleluia victory cry. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.